When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and my microphone stand is still broken. With any luck, I might get one for my birthday tomorrow. Fingers crossed, huh? Well, if you're listening to this in the United States when it comes out, chances are you're currently stuck in traffic, avoiding or reluctantly joining the crush of holiday travelers and last-minute shoppers running out for tinfoil. How do you forget the tinfoil? I'm just giving you a hard time because I forgot it too. But for a relaxing home-based holiday, Thanksgiving is surprisingly stressful, so I thought I'd help you out by giving you something to talk about this year. We've given you a lot to talk about over the last two years, like in episode one, when I explained in great detail that not only has contraception always existed, but recipes for abortifacients used to be sold in popular cookbooks. Try popping that recipe card between the pumpkin pie and grandma's famous green bean casserole. Then there was episode two about how Teresa Berkeley became a self-made millionaire with a multi-story sex dungeon in the heart of Regency London. Talk about girl bossing. Or for the hundred or so times people casually drop fatphobic comments, there's episode three about the problematic history of BMI, which will not only justify an extra piece of pie, but explains how modern America's obsession with thinness is deeply rooted in racism. And speaking of racism, how is your uncle? You know the one I mean. If you, like many Americans, have an uncle who watches a bit too much Fox News, our gayest episodes are numbers 6, 25, 2.4, and 2.5. You can thank me later. And by the way, did you know that the January 6th tip line is literally just 1-800-CALL-FBI? It's almost too simple, but that's what it is. I can't imagine why I thought of that just now. But speaking of fun things to talk about this Thanksgiving, how about fake news? Misinformation is not just a modern problem. If you can believe it, fake news and false information was a huge problem in the 18th century, years before the United States was an independent country. That is what we're talking about this week. Our guest is Dr. Jordan E. Taylor, author of Misinformation Nation, Foreign News and the Politics of Truth in Revolutionary America, out now from Johns Hopkins University Press. Not only has fake news always been a problem in this country, but you might say that America was founded on it. Something to think about when your family brings up current events and you feel like you're living in two different realities. In a lot of ways, you are. Pass the cooking, Sherry. On that note, here's my conversation with Dr. Jordan Taylor. So today on the show, we have Jordan Taylor, who is the author of the brand new Misinformation Nation. Oh my goodness, you guys, I was so excited about this book. So I have a lot of questions for you, but let's go ahead and start with the basics. Let's talk about newspapers. What were they like in 18th century America and how were they different from newspapers today? Well, thank you for having me. Um, I would say that if you picked up 
a newspaper from the 18th century today, it would be almost hard to know how to read it. We expect certain things from our newspapers. We expect things like headlines. We expect them to be in some sort of logical sequence that indicates the significance of uh, pieces of news, right? You, um, you expect like the most important things to come first. That wasn't how newspapers worked in the 18th century. Newspapers did not have journalists. They didn't have people whose job it was to uh, write news stories. Instead, for the most part, a newspaper put out a, you know, maybe a column or so of news of its own, each issue, sometimes less, sometimes nothing at all. And the rest of its news was taken from other newspapers. So the process of reprinting or republishing other newspapers' material was how news spread around uh, the world in the 18th century. And opening up an 18th century newspaper, uh, you're likely to find, you know, especially in British North America, sometimes between uh, half or two thirds of the news taken from newspapers in Europe, especially London. And so these newspapers were absolutely stuffed to the gills with foreign news, what we what we might call foreign news in any case, the material that was most interesting to people in North America. Because let's face it, in the 18th century, North America was a bit of a backwater, not something, not a place that, that people understood to be sort of the center of the world like we do today, uh, but rather as a place that was very much uh, on the fringes of, of people's attentions. And so the foreign news that people encountered in these newspapers was deeply important to them in ways that uh, I think a lot of foreign reporters today would would really envy. You know, people people struggle to get Americans to pay attention to uh, to the very important news around us instead of just uh, the things taking place in the United States. So that those were the important differences. Another thing that's really great about 18th century newspapers, uh, especially compared to the newspapers of today, is that they are incredibly durable. And I don't just mean in the sense that 20 years from now, who knows how much of the news that's published online will still exist, but literally physically, the the newspapers from the 18th century were printed on um, essentially old rags. And that has allowed them to persist in ways that the um, acidic pulpy paper of the late 19th and 20th centuries, those newspapers has not necessarily survived in the same way. And so we have this incredibly rich archive of uh, newspapers from the 18th century that are just full of of exciting little tidbits and details that, that people love to obsess over. And I thought that was so interesting, such a great detail. You know, you hear of um, newspapers and other publications being called rags, but I didn't realize that they were literally made of rags. That's just incredible to me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they what the way it worked is that paper mills would collect rags from people, from, from households that were done with them, essentially. So the newspaper that you were holding might have once been, you know, used to clean up dishes or or wipe a child's face or something like that and so these newspapers um 
have this incredibly intimate relationship, I think, with with the people who are reading them. Yeah. And they were incredibly popular as well. So what role did they play in 18th century American culture? You know, how many people were literate? That's a good question. In British North America, it depends on the region, of course. Generally speaking, the further north you went, uh, the more likely people are to be literate. Uh, certainly the case that enslaved people are prevented from learning to read English by, uh, by their enslavers. And um, many white Southerners were also, you know, sort of on average, a bit less literate than their counterparts in, you know, say, New England or Pennsylvania or, or places like that. But if you looked at sort of the ordinary white citizen of the United States in the 18th century, there was a good chance that they would uh, they would be able to read. Now, whether or not they actually subscribed to newspapers or whether they encountered them from a neighbor or from, you know, maybe a preacher in the t local town who was the only person around them who subscribed to the newspaper, you know, that, that could sort of, that could sort of depend on uh, the time and place. It's, it's probably the case that most people were not reading the newspaper every single week, but a lot of people were encountering the ideas and information that newspapers were spreading through the process of these newspapers sort of injecting it into, I don't know, sort of the the, the buzz of the streets and the taverns and places like that. Now, you mentioned that newspapers were more focused on like foreign news because local news was essentially taken for granted, right? So people were reading about revolutions taking place all around the world, everywhere from France and Poland to Haiti and Peru. So how were people responding to these stories? How much influence do you think that had on the American Revolution? Yeah, when you think about the era of the American Revolution, you have to remember that Americans saw themselves as participating in a global transformation that was sort of anti-imperialist, anti-monarchist, and would ultimately transform the world. Whether this happened or not, it's, it's kind of hard to say. When they saw things like the French Revolution break out in 1789, and they saw a number of abortive revolutions in the 1780s and 1790s, events in Poland, you mentioned Peru, Sandomanger, the Haitian Revolution, things like that. They looked to these events as a way of thinking through the implications and meaning of their own revolution. Was the American Revolution the beginning of a global wave of, you know, sort of anti-imperial politics or anti-monarchism? That was one way of interpreting the news around them. Another way of thinking about it was, you know, was the American Revolution exceptional? Uh, did it defy the trends of the era? And instead of uh, being an ant, like, you know, the beginning of this anti-imperialist wave, was it uh, the one example of a revolution that didn't sort of spin out of control? People could read the news that way as well, depending on what sources they were looking at, depending on, um, which examples they chose to focus on. So you point out that patriots and loyalists not only disagreed about England, but they had different understandings about what was actually happening in Parliament as well. The parallels to our current political climate are pretty clear. Uh, so how was the 18th century political climate similar to what we're seeing today? Yeah, uh, <laughs> there are some interesting parallels there. It's always a little bit difficult to draw very clear 
comparisons, right? And uh, a historian always wants to sort of muddy the ground and, and focus on the complexity. But I think that there are some pretty important and clear uh, parallels to be drawn. One is just the obvious point that when you are engaging with a different set of information from your neighbor, you're going to develop two completely different views of how the world works and the way that power operates in the world. In the, 18, in the late 18th century, the, the Patriots developed this very particular view of how power was operating in London and uh, within Parliament. They believed that Parliament was being led by an evil ministry of people who were conspiring to strip them of their English liberties. They believed that this group was actually very, deep, just deeply unpopular in Britain itself. And that once the people of Britain had a chance to learn of how unjust these policies were through the petitions, through the letters, through the uh, newspaper articles that the Americans were, were writing and sending east to Britain, once they had a sense of the injustice of the measures that these the British leadership was pursuing, then they would vote them out of office. They would crumble. They would fall. They also had this idea that they could put pressure on uh, the British ministry by exerting their economic power, by boycotting, essentially. Right? We know uh, many of us who are familiar with the American Revolution know the story of how the patriots um, engaged in boycotts and. The reason for that was they believed that it would um, it would cause the British ministry to sort of fall from their like tottering perch uh, atop parliament. All of these things were really just untrue, ultimately. <laughs> and they weren't even necessarily very close to being true. In fact, the British government was, the ministry led by um, Frederick North was incredibly popular outside of London, especially. They managed to hang on to power until 1782, uh, which was the longest British ministry in years. And the actions that the Patriots took didn't really have much of an effect on public opinion in, in Britain more generally. So you have this view of the world and this view of how the conflict, the imperial crisis, as it's sometimes known, uh, between the colonists and the British government would play out that was in a lot of ways just unmoored from reality. And the reason for that was that the patriots were reading a lot of these newspapers and letters from their friends in England, from the people who, who they liked, rather than reading information derived from people that they, that they didn't like as much. We do that today, of course. We love to engage with news sources that tell us what we want to hear, right? Mm -hmm. And that isn't going to lead to inaccuracy, right? Sometimes the news sources that I like are, are quite accurate, but it's also not going to provide us with a full picture of reality. And I think that's something very similar played out in the late 18th century. You know, you can contrast that with loyalists. The, the short way of describing it is they believe the opposite of these things. And in a lot of cases, uh, the loyalists, I think, were closer to being correct about their understanding of the politics within London and just sort of how things would play out in the imperial crisis. And so, yeah, I, I think the parallels with the United States in the 21st century 
are, are sort of unavoidable there. Uh, we get trapped in our own silos of information and it becomes almost impossible to escape them. It's, it feels to me sometimes. No, you're absolutely right. It is terrifying how much influence fake news can have. I mean, like even now, but when you, you consider that's how our country came about, do you think it's safe to say that America was founded on fake news? <laughs> yeah, so so sometimes I get in trouble for using the term fake news uh, because it is sort of imprecise. I, I think that it's fair to say that the precise sequence of events, right, that that resulted in the founding wouldn't have quite gone the same way as it did without people being misinformed or without some misperceptions. You can you can extrapolate from that, I guess, to say that the United States was in a lot of ways founded on uh, on misinformation or fake news or whatever you choose to call it. Sure. Wow. OK, so one of the things that jumped out at me right away, I had a laugh about this and then I wondered if I should think it was that funny. Um, so in the 1790s, some people believed that the French were led by a secret society of Illuminati set on world domination. So this immediately made me think of like the National Enquirer talking about like Bigfoot and Elvis's ghost, you know, or like kind of more recent kind of batshit conspiracy theories. Right. So what were some of the stranger stories that were circulating around at this time? Yeah, I mean, that's a big one, certainly. Uh, that's that's one of the big conspiracy theories of the time. There are a lot of um, odd things that people believe in the late 18th century. In, in Canada, actually, in the 1790s, people look at what's happening in France and they just refuse to believe a lot of the stories that they're encountering, uh, in part because these are a lot of the people in Canada are uh, ethnically French, um, have descended from French settlers, but by this time Canada is um, controlled by the British Empire. So you have these people who are very sympathetic to the French who are being bombarded in a lot of ways with anti-French propaganda, you might put, you might think of it as. And that leads to some strange sort of cognitive dissonance in a way. And one of the ways that people resolve this is by inventing stories about what's going on in France. One of my favorite examples is a group of essentially French, French Canadian peasants who say, you know, the story about the French revolutionaries beheading Louis the 16th in 1793, that can't be true. We just don't believe it. If he's missing, it must be that he just is able to make himself invisible. You know, what? that's that's the best <laughs> that's the best explanation available here for why suddenly no one can uh, locate the king. So, you know, when when your uh, interpretation of the world conflicts with the information that you're presented with, it often leads people down strange paths like that or down the path of conspiracy theorizing, as in the example of the Illuminati. Uh, conspiracy in 1798, which uh, which you referenced, and which you know that is, I think, probably the most fun of the silly things that people believed in in the era of the American Revolution. Um, and so that was essentially, I think, an attempt to explain why the French Revolution went off the rails, because people who had long embraced the ideas of the French Revolution and had thought of it as being this really positive thing for world history and an extension of the ideals of the American Revolution suddenly were faced with 
this news that suggested, yeah, maybe this revolution's going a little bit off the rails. So they can either say, okay, we were wrong, or they can say, we were deceived. And a lot of people preferred the latter option. But in order for um, that explanation to make sense, they had to invent this cabal of deceivers, right? And the only way to perpetrate this huge deception about the French Revolution that says it was this evil act perpetrated upon the world to destroy religion and root out the fundamental institutions that keep order in society. The only way to make that count of reality makes it to make sense is to invent this elaborate conspiracy with an all-powerful gang of deceivers. And that was why the Illuminati sort of stepped in. It, it helped people to make sense of an event that otherwise was in a lot of ways inexplicable to them. So it's, it's easier to believe in a conspiracy that's really out there than to believe that they were wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or another way of thinking about it, I, I think that's right. But another way of thinking about it is that people don't do well with complexity, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, and an, a version of reality that says, you know, the French Revolution started as one thing, and it evolved, it became something else, and then it became something else, and so on. That was a little bit too complicated for people to get their heads around. And so they just gravitated more toward an explanation that, um, while, you know, completely wrong, and as you put it, batshit in retrospect, had the benefit of being very clear and offering a sense of who the heroes were of the story, who the villains were, and who were the victims of the story. I think we can often see here in the present that people still gravitate toward visions of reality that uh, give a clear sense of, of heroes, victims, and villains and sort of this very black and white sense. And who can blame them? This is how all of the great stories are told. This is, uh, this is how children are raised to see reality through the stories that we read to them at night. And I think it's not so easy for us to sort of just turn that switch in our brains off when we're reading a newspaper. So in your introduction, you make the point that although knowledge is power, power can actually create knowledge. Can you elaborate on this idea further? Information flows in response to all kinds of things. One of those is, you know, where are ships moving? Where are travelers and merchants going? But it also flows in response to the preferences and the will of political actors. And in the early 18th century, people like, you know, colonial governors, they kind of sort of set the boundaries of what acceptable forms of information are. And they will often prosecute people for uh, spreading news that they deem to be false. And so in a lot of ways, what you see throughout the 18th century, even well past the point that the United States and you know, the First Amendment come into being, is uh, governments working in all kinds of ways to shape what narratives, what versions of the truth are available to ordinary people, right? And so, you know, you have cases of the U.S. government throwing people in jail because they're sharing accounts of American diplomacy that they don't that the that the government doesn't agree with. You have 
um, the attorney general of Lower Canada threatening to throw a printer in a dungeon uh, because he he uh, provided a translation for a news article that the government didn't agree with. And so it's not necessarily the case that powerful figures, especially governments, are able to wholesale, like produce or fabricate information of their choosing, but they do create boundaries within which certain kinds of information are unacceptable and certain kinds of news are are valid. All that having been said, right, this isn't just a matter of governments. You also have ordinary people who are acting as mediators for flow of information through the world. And more often than not, people who operate in those roles, mediating what information is is spreading uh, across space and time, more often than not, those are white men. And more often than not, they are excluding forms of information that that don't accord with their own racial and uh, imperial and and gender-based preconceptions of the world. You know, for instance, you look at the way that people in the United States in the 1780s and the 1790s experience slave revolts in the Caribbean. They are more or less unable to think about them as events that are being directed by by enslaved people themselves. Instead, they try they tend to exclude accounts that um, don't provide a narrative that that other imperial forces like, you know, the French or the British are behind these slave revolts. And so in a lot of cases, information that's circulating rumor based information is excluded from further mediation, but ends up being much closer to reality, uh, which we can tell with the benefit of hindsight. And uh, speaking of hindsight, you know, this must be quite a challenge to to read all these newspapers. I think a lot of people, the mistake that they want to make is you look back at these old sources and you want to just kind of take them as gospel, right? You just assume that everything is is correct because everybody knows that, you know, from Walter Cronkite and beyond, everything <laughs> in the news must have been true. You know, it, is it difficult to to kind of sort through that as a historian? Do you have any advice for analyzing these sources? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that you have to bring a lot of skepticism to almost anything that's printed in a newspaper before, oh, geez, uh, certainly before the 20th century. Um, And one of the challenges that I face is that in a lot of cases, these newspapers are reporting about things that are so obscure and um, so unimportant, really, to... Uh, present-day historians, that it's sort of hard to fact-check them with a distance of 200 years. And so my attitude in a lot of cases sort of had to be, I don't know, and I don't care whether whether this particular story is true. What's important to me is thinking about the ways that people were arguing about it, the ways that it clearly played a role in um, in shaping the the politics of this moment in time. And so I, I'm a little bit agnostic about um, about a lot of the stories that are uh, at the forefront of this book, and uh, and also, you know, this this ties into that earlier point about uh, misinformation versus disinformation. You know, is this 
uh, a product of intentional deception or is it just something that, that occurs through honest error? Um, and again, this, this comes back to this point, right? That it's very difficult to sort through um, the evidence to determine this with like two centuries distance between me and them. And so you sort of have to just uh, accept that there, there are other questions that you can engage with. Yeah, and in some ways, of course, it, it tells us more about how they thought as opposed to what was actually happening. Um, and then also that poetry was acceptable in newspapers. You, you have that poem from uh, from Ben Franklin about newspapers. Yeah, poetry was all over these newspapers. Um, and I love, I love that 18th century newspaper poetry. It's one of my favorite things. Uh, there's no such thing as good 18th century newspaper poetry in my mind. <laughs> yeah, ben, Franklin, ben Franklin was okay in some ways, but you have uh, one of the most famous poets of the 18th century um, in, in America, I should say, named Philip Freneau, a man who's sometimes referred to as the poet of the American Revolution. And uh, he prints a newspaper in uh, from 1791 to 1793 in Philadelphia called the National Gazette. And so he he's, uh, I sort of suspect that he was just printing a newspaper as an excuse to uh, publish his poems every week. Um, a lot of them are a lot of them are pretty bad as well. Um, but <laughs> luckily, you know, it, it does give him an occasion to talk about the things that I care about, which is um, which is you know newspapers and the the relationship between between them and uh, and just the world. One of the really interesting things about uh, newspaper poetry is that every holiday season, so it's usually sometime between Christmas and New Year's, there's this tradition of uh, sending out the the carriers, usually apprentices uh, or um, sometimes uh, not apprentices, sometimes just just men who have uh, sort of a part-time job delivering newspapers. Uh, so sending out these carriers to the subscribers and delivering a poem uh, saying, you know, here's all the news from the past year. Uh, would you please give me a tip? Uh, because because uh, that was how a lot of these carriers sort of balance the books at the end of the year. And uh, these these poems are great because they are, you know, finally offering a sense of what news mattered and what relationship people have to, to news. Um, and also, again, very bad, uh, very bad poetry. Almost every one of them rhymes uh, news with, uh, with shoes. In other words, uh, I, uh, while I was delivering you this news, I wore out the leather on my shoes, stuff like that. So it, it gets old after a while, but they're, they're great. These, they're called carrier addresses. Um, and uh, they're, they're great fun. I think we should bring them back actually. Okay, so it's um at the end of the year they're summarizing the year's news like in a rhyming poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a bad rhyming poem. Oh my god! Okay, so it's like we didn't start the fire just like two hundred years earlier. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, right? it's exactly like that, except uh, without without uh, the benefit of Billy Joel to uh, to sort of you know smooth off the the rough edges. Unfortunately, he's uh he's bringing it back. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So you have this wonderful passage about John Adams, if I can just read it and just paraphrase the beginning. Okay. So John Adams insisted that the revolutionary era should not be remembered as a time of wisdom, deliberation, and reason. 
Instead, he preferred to think of it as an age of frivolity, though he would not object if you had named it the age of folly, vice, frenzy, fury, brutality, Damon's Bonaparte, Tom Paine, and the age of the burning brand from the bottomless pit. Anything but the age of reason. My God. So this era seems <laughs> to be particularly vulnerable to like fake history. So how was the reality of the revolutionary era different from our perception of it today? I think that, you know, going back to that earlier point um, that I made, which is that people don't like complexity. People don't like complexity about the American Revolution. We like this uh, account of a heroic bunch of, of founders, you know, this generation of virtuous men, usually, overcoming the villainous British tyranny, right? And it's it's just a lot more complicated than that. And you know, I think if if you look at a lot of the stories that I tell uh, in the book, it doesn't come out that way at all. In fact, in a lot of cases, what you're seeing is uh, a bunch of paranoid weirdos who are overreacting to almost nothing. And John Adams, you know, the grumpiest of the founders, saw things that way, at least a little bit. I don't think he would admit that he himself was engaging in, in folly and in anything but reason. But he saw the people around him um, living through, you know, uh, this age of folly or this age of, you know, anything but the age of reason, and that's that's often how people critique their their political opponents. They don't they don't necessarily understand that they are engaging in political behavior on the basis of misconceptions or misperceptions, but they see their opponents do it, and. You know, one of them has to be right. <laughs> uh, I, I think that in a lot of cases, both of them were. But I think the important thing here is that when we remember the uh, American Revolution and the broader age of revolutions really as sort of um, a moment when this founding generation erected an inerrant fabric uh, of government that we have to accommodate ourselves to, that we have to accept as is, rather than building upon it and changing it and uh, forcing it to accommodate to us as we change over time. We do the founders a, a pretty grave disservice in that whole generation because the founders and that generation, they had some good ideas, they had some bad ideas, they recognized that. They recognized that they were not these perfect virtuous inhabitants of an age of reason. Uh, they were capable of making big mistakes and they inhabited anything but the age of reason. Um, and I think when we look back at them with this uh, with this sort of uh, ahistorical nostalgia, we're not only doing ourselves a disservice, we're also viewing them as, in a way, both more than and less than human. That's a really good way of putting it. Okay, so some people say that we're living in a post-truth society now, but it almost sounds like so were they. So do you think that there was ever a time at, at any point in history where the news was just the objective truth? It's a good question. If you look, you know, I'm not an expert on, you know, 11th century China, you know, so like when, when uh, we talk about any point in history, I, I can't speak to everything. But if we look at American history, I think pretty clearly, no. And a lot of the reason that people use the term like post-truth or describe ourselves as 
existing in um, in an era of unusual misinformation is we have this weird nostalgia for sort of the mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you, you called that out earlier. Mm-hmm. And like, there's this idea that in the mid 20th century, broadcasters and like CBS news, they, they were trustworthy because they appealed to everyone. They, they uh, weren't partisan because they were uh, reaching the entire country at once. And they had to therefore offer the broadest possible account of the world that would make sense to everyone. And to some extent, that's true. To some extent as well, you can see that that's also going to inevitably exclude people who are not understood to be important members of America's political community, which, you know, for most of the mid 20th century was uh, people of color, socialists, native people, and, you know, to a more than insignificant extent, women, right? Um, And so I think that that nostalgia that we have for this sort of pre-post-truth era, if we want to call it that, is not really worth engaging with in some ways because it, it, it just forgets about the ways that the news media for a very long time was, was so dominated by powerful white men. Today, we don't have that quite as much. We have less gatekeeping by powerful uh, white men, but that also means that when we look at the news media around us, because there's so much less authority, because there are fewer gatekeepers, people are able to share whatever nonsense they want, right? And so to some extent, you you kind of have to look at uh, it as an option, right? Do you want a news ecosystem that is dominated by a few powerful gatekeepers as a way of limiting the flow of information and misinformation that opens you up to the possibility that uh, they are going to define misinformation as anything that they don't like, right? Or do you want a more sort of free-flowing, cacophonous world of information? Um, in a funny thing, in a, in a funny way, we saw uh, this transformation in the 18th century as well. Um, we move from an era, sort of the uh, sort of, in a way, one dominated by gatekeepers in the early 18th century to one that is much more free-flowing in the late 18th century. And I'm not sure where I fall on this, though. Uh, it does seem that we we have some pretty powerful, you know, weaknesses to, um, to both of those kinds of media ecosystems. But I, I think that any, any media ecosystem that does not allow for ordinary people to engage with it is inevitably going to lead to, to corruption and and um, at least a dangerous possibility of, um, of information being wielded to reproduce existing power systems. Right. And, uh, and as always with, with history, we learned that nothing is really new, is it? You know, like these things have all kind of happened before. So are there any lessons that we can take from this for the 21st century? Yeah, I, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, and I, I think it would be wrong of me to insist that uh, the history of media in 
the American Revolution can offer any sort of like policy prescriptions. Uh, you know, in some ways there are some conclusions to be drawn, uh, but they don't lead necessarily toward like legislation that we can act on. There is a pessimistic conclusion that we can draw, which, uh, you know, one way of thinking about this is that fake news has been with us since the beginning of modern democratic politics, and it's probably going to be with us through the end, right? But we can also think about this a bit more helpfully, I hope. Um, one way of thinking about it is that American society has never really valued uncertainty. And we can, right? Americans in the revolutionary era were remarkably confident about things that they were consistently wrong about. They were skeptical about certain kinds of news, but they trained that skepticism very uh, unevenly. Uh, so they, they exercised a great deal of scrutiny toward things that they didn't like and accepted uncritically things that they did like. Many of us are doing the same things today, and that doesn't necessarily bother us. Um, I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like my book is an extended plea for people to, uh, to not have to feel like they need to make decisions about everything right away, that they can sort of sit in complexity and uncertainty and resist uh, the attraction toward you know, news media mediators or political leaders or other um, commentators or figures whose appeal is based on presenting a um, vision of the world with a sort of unfounded certainty uh, about how things work. So that's one thing that I think, it's, it's, that's a very abstract uh, thing that I think we can take with us going forward. And um, I think another thing is that today we have tools of verification and fact-checking that just didn't exist in the late 18th century. I think we should celebrate those. We have science, scientists who are much more uh, reliable than the scientists of the 18th century. We have journalists who may be imperfect, but who lose their jobs if they make things up, which wasn't the case in the 18th century. We have researchers, um, we have pollsters, you know, we have millions of people working in professions that are defined by an open-ended search for truth. And that, you know, each of these disciplines are uh, limited by professional ethics that create consequences for just making things up. And that's really remarkable when you put that next to how things, how information flowed and how knowledge was created in the late 18th century. That's not to say that these institutions are perfect. They are not. They are highly imperfect. You know, we could we could spend an hour, several hours probably, going through all of the um, weaknesses and limitations of today's media. But collectively, I think those institutions push us toward knowing things mm -hmm. slowly, right? And when you look at the world that we inhabit from the perspective of the 18th century where none of that infrastructure was in place, where no one was disciplined by professional ethics surrounding evidence, 
it's remarkable. It's miraculous. And I think that the society that we live in, American society, could do a much better job of appreciating that um, in all kinds of ways, you know, both both just um, using the knowledge that's created by by researchers, by scientists, by journalists, and also by, you know, paying for it, funding it, subscribing to newspapers, supporting real journalists who's, uh, who need resources in order to create accountability for powerful people and in order to present um, unflinchingly truthful accounts of the world. Perfect. So what's next for you? Where can we find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, if Twitter still exists by the time this go out goes out, um, <laughs> my, my Twitter handle is uh, at Publius or Parish. And I have a website, uh, jordanetaylor.com. And uh, I'm sort of working on uh, a couple of other books. One is about uh, the founders and fake news. And the other is um, a history of the relationship between uh, slavery, inequality, and the rise of the American news media in the 18th century. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, best of luck with those. And uh, we can't wait to read them when you're done. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might be a while, but thank you. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Jordan Taylor for stopping by. His book is Misinformation Nation, and you can find him at jordanetaylor.com or on Twitter at Publius or Parish. And thank you, as always, to my favorite people, our beautiful patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Rose Little, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History. Our Patreon, of course, is patreon.com slash Dirty Sexy History. And as you can tell, we don't have much of an imagination, but we do like to make this easy for you. So you can also find us on Mastodon at Dirty Sexy History at toot.wales. Wales, as in the country where I went to college, not the mammal. <laughs> you can also find us and our six years of post archives on our website at dirtysexyhistory.com. Happy Thanksgiving. See you next time. <laughs>